it requires us to to just think about power differently. I mean, we would create these white papers that were beautifully researched. We even, though we're academics, we learned to make them short enough that a legislator might actually read them. We would talk them point by point with the staffer and staffer sits there nodding their head and nothing changed. And so it was really, I think, a good reminder that the only way to move anything is through moving power. Welcome to AUP Presents. I'm the host, Mariah Quinn. From Florida to Texas to Ohio to Indiana, politicians in some states are trying to substitute their own ideological beliefs for educational freedom by passing legislation that interferes with how colleges and universities operate. They're introducing bills that mandate or prohibit content in the classroom, empower partisan political appointees to determine campus policy, limit the freedom to learn, teach, and conduct research. The AUP has been at the forefront of the fight against political interference in higher education, and today we're going to talk to two people who've taken part in AUP member-led efforts to fight legislative interference in Texas and Ohio, specifically around bills targeting diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, tenure, and collective bargaining. We'll talk about their successes, failures, and lessons and strategies for organizing and gearing up for these types of legislative fights. My guests are Karma R. Chavez, the Bobby and Sherry Patton Professor and Chair of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Texas in Austin, where she also serves on the Executive Committee of the AAUP chapter, and Sarah Kilpatrick, the AAUP Ohio Conference Executive Director. She previously worked as the Political Director for the Ohio Senate Democratic Caucus. Let's get to the conversation. All right, Karma, let's start in Texas. Can you give us an overview of what happened during the 2023 Texas legislative session and what bills you were focused on opposing and why? Yeah, so there were actually a number of anti-higher ed bills that were proposed in the state of Texas in the 2023 uh, legislative session. And we were really focused in on three of those. Uh, They were part of Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's priority bills. So they had low numbers, SB 16, which would have banned critical race theory or, you know, rather the teaching of of race and ethnicity and gender in classrooms. SB 17, which banned DEI offices, uh, considerations and hiring trainings. And SB 18, which originally would have eliminated tenure in public universities in the state of Texas, ended up just uh, modifying its meaning. So uh, we knew these bills were going to come down the pipeline pretty early, I should say, probably after February 2022, when Dan Patrick said as much after the UT Austin Faculty Council suggested that we had a right to academic freedom. So we were pretty prepared. Many of us started organizing in uh, the spring of 2022, um, actually, and kind of just, you know, kept that kept that going fall of 22, then others of us started doing legislative visits. And yeah, we spent a lot of time with legislators. We organized with a lot of different partners, including AAUP, AFT, as well as the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and uh, other kind of local organizations. So we, yeah, I don't know if you want me to go into like what the results were. I'm happy to do that as well. Yeah. What, what did happen with the bills? What was the outcome? 
Yeah. So, you know, there was some good news and some bad news. I think if you talk to my college president, he he would just speak glowingly about what, what happened in the session and, and it could have been worse. But so SB 16 did not pass. Uh, that was a wonderful thing because that was really the, the targeting of academic freedom in terms of what we can teach in the classroom. SB 17 did pass, and, and the version of it that passed was uh, very significant. So what's happened since January 1st, when it went into effect, is essentially all DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion offices, or anything of the like across the state of Texas, uh, have been eliminated or uh, completely restructured. They've all been renamed. And so what this has meant uh, is all sorts of things have disappeared that used to provide student support. So DEI offices are gone. DEI officers are gone. There is no longer any space for any trainings that are actually hosted by a a, a public university. So I can take a a training on LinkedIn, but not through UT. And we can talk later about how expansive that definition is. Uh, Student organizations that once had staff and space resources no longer can have that because in addition to the ban on on DEI through SB 17, there was also a, a budget rider in the budget bill that said no money can go towards DEI. So that's been, frankly, a mess around campus. And then there's SB 18, which SB 18 didn't eliminate tenure, but it did expand the grounds for which faculty can be terminated, even if they have tenure protections. Uh, A couple of those are especially frightening because they deal with conduct on one's personal time. So if that conduct reflects poorly on uh, one's institution, that can be grounds for termination. This is especially sobering given that there's also uh, a new clause within uh, SB 18 for a summary dismissal. So you can just be sum- summarily dismissed. You don't have to have gone through any real process. I don't have all the details on this yet. There's been one very public case from UT Tyler of a faculty member who, without any process whatsoever, uh, was given uh, a notification by her dean, not even her college president. That's since been rescinded and going through a process, but my understanding is there's about eight to 10 cases throughout the state of Texas that are against tenured faculty that are a result of SB 18. So, you know, we didn't lose tenure, but uh, we lost a lot of its meaning. And so with the loss of any institutional DEI initiatives or DEI trainings, has there been adaptations kind of at the informal level in how schools or faculty or students are integrating that in some way? What kind of happened on the ground level? So one of the things that at least happened at my institution, UT Austin, was that there was very little public discourse about the rollout of what this was going to look like. It all happened in a very black boxed way led by the vice president for legal affairs. So what that meant was um, legal interpreted the law and then worked with individual deans and and primarily deans and and administrators uh, to create a process for how to implement. And they did that process under attorney-client privilege, which meant that there was no way for the public to actually access what was going to happen. It also meant, since it was black boxed, it it wasn't going to be uh, publicized. So (laughs) everybody went through this process in the fall we all had to attest, we all had to sign a loyalty oath if we're an administrator that suggested that we were not doing any DEI, it was not against the law. 
Um, and then come January 1, December 31st, you know, even if we thought we were in compliance, some offices like our Multicultural Engagement Center, for example, found out, no, <laughs> you're not going to be considered compliance. And so that office was eliminated. Well, one of the things that's happened with this, though, is so some of the programs are getting taken up. So I'm in Mexican-American and Latino Latino studies. So we've taken up some of these programs, but we're under intense scrutiny. So it has to be directly connected to, to academic programming. So that's been risky. Departments have seen this as, as, as risky. So the burden has essentially fallen on students who are now members of registered student organizations. In other words, not sponsored student organizations with support from the university financially in terms of staff and space. But just like any group that wants to come together, they can register and then they have to go do their own fundraising and do all the work without any faculty or staff support. That's now where all the work for DEI is basically existing because stu those student groups were exempted from the law. And you can imagine the amount of burden that that is putting on students right now. It, it's really horrific. And we're going to come back to Texas in a moment, but Sarah, let's give a quick overview of what's happening in Ohio. You've been fighting Senate Bill 83 in Ohio for a long time now, and it's quite wide ranging and includes attacks on tenure, academic freedom and collective bargaining. Can you tell us a bit about the bill? Sure, uh, you're right. Uh, SB 83 has been on our radar for a while. It was introduced last March and hearing uh, Karma talk about what has happened in Texas. I mean, a lot of what's happened in Texas was all included into the single bill. I mean, it's really a conglomerate of model legislation produced by right-wing think tanks like the Manhattan Institute and National Association of Scholars. It contains approximately 15 different issue areas. So it's, it's a very big bill. You know, I would say that virtually every aspect of the bill is concerning in some way. Um, so much of the bill would impose onerous mandates on public institutions of higher education. And what's particularly frustrating about some of these is that, you know, these proposed edicts attempt to micromanage what institutions already have figured out how to do well for themselves. So if someone didn't know anything about Ohio higher education and picked up SB 83 to read it, they'd probably think, wow, Ohio colleges and universities don't have faculty evaluations or tenure and retrenchment policies and that there is a free speech crisis on campuses, but we know that this can be further from reality, that there are policies already governing these things on our campuses. Um, but I would say, you know, one of the greatest concerns from an AEP perspective about this bill is that it mandates so-called intellectual diversity in the classrooms, and it also creates complaint processes for students who feel that their quote-unquote intellectual diversity rights were violated. So let me give you an example of how this could play out in a classroom situation. Say there is a political science course and the discussion is around U.S. presidential elections and a student says that Joe Biden stole the 2020 election from Donald Trump. In the circumstance, is it acceptable that the professor simply says that isn't true and there's no evidence of that and simply moves on to a different topic? Or does the faculty member have to give substantial airtime to a conspiracy theory uh, that has time and time again been debunked. And the answer to that is we don't know. And that's the problem that such a mandate presents is that, you know, if a student felt embarrassed, maybe because their peers were snickering when they asked the question, or they believe their alleged rights were somehow violated, they might submit a complaint. 
which ultimately could hurt the faculty member when the faculty member, in fact, you know, didn't do anything wrong. So there are many problems with how this bill could be interpreted and how it could impact academic freedom. And of course, the intent is to chill academic freedom and to chill those open and honest classroom discussions um, and invite conspiracy theories into the classroom. Another piece of the bill that we find deeply troubling and this, you know, relates back to what Karma was speaking about, what happening in Texas, is that certain administrators under this bill could call for post-tenure review at any time, which could lead to termination of the faculty member. And so if post-tenure review could happen at any time, then you don't really have tenure, right? You only have tenure in name only. And this will hurt Ohio institutions' ability to retain and attract quality faculty. In fact, you know, this bill isn't even a law. And we already have seen some faculty leaving the state for other opportunities. And we've also seen faculty candidates withdrawing their names from consideration for job opportunities. And they explicitly cite SB 83 as a reason that they're withdrawing their names. So this bill, even though it's not a law, is already having a negative impact on Ohio's ability to recruit. Um, just to you know, go into a couple of other pieces, the bill would require boards of trustees to establish retrenchment policies and the bill gives such a broad definition of retrenchment that it would be so exceedingly easy for management to justify retrenchment. Um, the definition broadly refers to things like fiscal pressures and enrollment drops. So theoretically, a program could lose a single student and potentially be on the chopping block. The sponsor of the bill wants to make it very, very easy for faculty to be fired and for programs to be shuttered. One of the other pieces is that SB 83 would impose a new faculty evaluation system. It's an annual evaluation system. And some of our institutions already have annual faculty evaluations. But for our really big universities, that's administrators are going to be, end up spending all of their time doing faculty evaluations every year. It's a really onerous mandate. And again, this is another attempt to make it easier for administrators to, fi to fire faculty. The evaluations even weight student surveys as part of it. So they want to give a lot of power to the students to have say over whether the faculty member is you know, performing. One of the last big things I'll mention about the bill is that, and certainly there's more that I could discuss, but is that it would gut faculty collective bargaining rights. Um, the original version of the bill banned strikes for all campus unions that was later removed in an amended version of the bill, but what ended up being inserted is language that would prohibit faculty unions from bargaining over certain subjects, those being workload, retrenchment, tenure, and evaluations. And if you're familiar with faculty collective bargaining agreements, you know that outside of the economic issues dealing with salaries and benefits, that these bargaining topics are some of the most fundamental in terms of contracts and to the terms and conditions of faculty employment. So, I would say that this has actually been a critical error by the bill sponsor to include this because not all Ohio Republicans are as anti-union as he is. And this has given the greatest pause to a number of Republicans um, in the Ohio House. And so, um, you know, the bill is on pause right now. And I, I do believe it's largely because of the anti-collective bargaining language. And do you expect it to stay on pause? What's the trajectory forward, do you think? Sure. Well, just to give you a little sense of where the bill has been. So, you know, I mentioned before it was introduced in March. It uh, passed the Senate in May, which we were expecting, and then it moved over to the House of Representatives where it sat in the Higher Education Committee for a while. And they actually tried to shove the bill into the state budget bill. This is what they do sometimes with unpopular policies. They try to hide it in this huge budget bill. So the Senate actually did that, but it ended up coming out during the Budget Conference Committee. 
And then uh, the people who are pushing the bill vowed that they'd bring it up again in the fall. And they did that. And for a while, we were able to hold the line. We needed all of the Democrats in the House Higher Education Committee to be with us. And we needed three Republicans to be with us. And for a while, you know, we held that um, group together. But unfortunately, in early December, one of the Republicans who had been a no vote for us decided to flip her vote. And the bill ended up passing the House committee by an eight to seven vote. And typically, this would tee things up for a full vote by the entire House. Um, but the bill has simply sat in what's called the Rules and Reference Committee. And the Speaker of the House has the authority to just keep it there. But there is something called a discharge petition, where uh, if a majority of House members sign the discharge pe petition, it forces it onto the floor for a vote. Um, but this And this was actually just attempted a couple of weeks ago, but the representative spearheading the effort fell woefully short of the signatures needed for the petition to be successful. There were also attempts, though, in the last House session to amend all of SB 83 into other bills that were being voted on that day. And uh, thankfully, those efforts fell short as well. So we are in a bit of a precarious situation because the bill could be brought to the full House floor for a vote at any time. But it doesn't seem like this is something that the Speaker of the House is in favor of. And so right now we're in a bit of a holding pattern. But, you know, thankfully, it hasn't been passed by the House. And Sarah, you mentioned that these bills are built on model legislation that's put out by right-wing think tanks and other organizations. In fact, in Indiana this week, there's a bill where um, that language about intellectual diversity in the classroom is identical. Can either of you talk a little more about these organizations and what you know of them and how they're bringing these bills to many legislatures across the country? I can speak a little bit about the National Association of Scholars. I mean, there was actually a student journalist that, you know, had an open records request to the senator who sponsored SB 83. And, you know, they discovered there was a lot of communication between him and the National Association of Scholars, people who are in Ohio and also beyond Ohio. And so there, you know, these people are directly, you know, contacting and working with state legislators to try to advance these bills. Um, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, information out there in terms of, you know, how a lot of these are billionaire backed. And of course, um, you know, the idea is to undermine higher education. Um, and we know, of course, which in Ohio is so funny because they call SB 83 the Ohio Higher Education Enhancement Act. And then we call it the Ohio Higher Education Destruction Act because that's really what it would do. And I guess I would just add a, a little bit to that, um, thinking more about the Manhattan Institute and, and Christopher Rufo, who's also, you know, part of this big story, too. And I think a lot of people know that that story, but just sort of his rise to, to prominence and then his ability to get a lot of uh, right wing funding to, you know, to promote these different causes from CRT to, to DEI. And uh, I will say, you know, SB 17 has language in it that is essentially word for word from the draft legislation that Rufo and colleagues published with the Manhattan Institute in January 2023. So so there is an absolute direct connection between these things. They're not just organic coming from the state. And I think it's really important we all note that. And I always tell folks in these conversations, I always try to drop this citation in, which is that if you really want to understand the kind of long game of what's going on here, Nancy McLean's book, Democracy in Chains, it is uh, really going to help you to, to get a sense of this. So I just always, always try to make sure to give that plug. Let's turn to the organizing and um, advocacy efforts that 
are ongoing in both of your states. Just from the the 10,000 foot view, how did you gear up to take on the legislative fights? Uh, Karma, do you want to go first? Yeah, so I think there was a, a kind of multifaceted approach to, to to our work. So in January 2022, there was a, a group of mostly faculty of color at, at UT Austin that I'm a part of that we reached out to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund right away when we were anxious what Dan Patrick's going to do. And so NAACP LDF, they they were uh, integral in in helping with our efforts, and especially kind of our statewide organizing efforts, given that, you know, AAUP, I will say in the year, year and a half since this really geared up, it, it's grown exponentially in the state of Texas. UT Austin, I think in the fall of 2022, we maybe had 20 members on campus and we have 150 now. And uh, there's just been incredible statewide organizing. And so really it was uh, trying to get people to understand that we are labor, uh, not professionals, which is really hard for faculty to wrap their heads around. But that was a, a big part of our efforts, really trying to, to rally faculty of color. So I, I put together a statewide network of ethnic studies leaders. I also put a we kind of made a shadow coalition to work alongside AAUP for folks who uh, you know, had for whatever reason feelings about AAUP, whether it was just they didn't know what it was, they didn't want to pay dues to something, they had had a bad experience, they don't like some of AAUP stances on Israel-Palestine, whatever it was. And so, you know, we were kind of working in a number of different tracks uh, to bring as many people to the table as possible. And most of the really on the ground work happened with faculty who are at UT Austin, as well as some who are at Texas State, because we're right here by the Capitol. But it was a lot of, you know, boots on the ground type of work. We were at the Capitol two, three days a week from, I would say, early January through the end of May. We held several rallies. We worked with the African-American Policy Forum, Kimberly Crenshaw's organization, to be a part of their their. Um, early May events for the freedom to learn. So there was a lot of local stuff uh, spreading across the state and then some national work as well. We really got our media campaigns uh, on point, I think, by the by the end of things. And, you know, we're ready for 2025, I think. <laughs> but the problem is, you know, whether they listen to us. But uh, so, and the one other thing I'll add is the student piece of it. So we worked really closely with, a new coalition that formed with students that I had worked with for a long time called Texas Students for DEI. And uh, they were they were tremendous allies. So the one piece we really messed up on, didn't get enough, was the alumni piece. And that's really what we're going to build out for, for the next session. Yeah. And Sarah, as Carmen just said, developing partnerships with other unions and interested organizations played a role in that campaign. Sarah, in an article for Academe, you wrote, Politics is about power and relationships, and it is not enough for the AEP to focus only on those issues that directly affect faculty members. We must be politically engaged, support our allies, and build solidarity. So how did you approach building alliances? Who did you reach out to, and how effective was that? Sure. I mean, luckily in Ohio, we've had coalitions that have existed for a number of years, um, but we also have brought new organizations into the fold over this bill that we've not been involved with in the past. I mean, I think alliances sometimes naturally form where there is a crisis or even just a common goal. Um, but that's why I would say it's important to have someone dedicated to this work in your state. I mean, volunteers are great, but, it, you know, I'm a staff member for the Ohio Conference AAUP. 
And, you know, I've been with the AUP now for, you know, over 13 years. And so the people that I'm working with on these issues, you know, I've known, you know, in some cases for a decade or two. And so, you know, having those relationships build up, being able to turn to these coalition organizations is really important. Our labor union coalition called We Are Ohio, it formed um, in 2011 around the Senate Bill 5 fight, which was the fight to retain collective bargaining rights for public employees in Ohio. And they have just been outstanding um, in working with us to push back against this bill and to highlight the anti-collective bargaining nature of this bill. Um, We also have this coalition called Honesty for Ohio Education. And this is an organization that formed really out of the educational gag order bills that we started seeing crop up in K-12 education. And so, you know, they have been really effective in helping to push back against those. And then when, you know, we started to see the same kind of things crop up in higher education, they were ready to step up and start battling against those as well. And so, you know, it really is about developing relationships. And as I said, sometimes those are will naturally occur. But we've been really lucky in Ohio to have these existing coalitions that have helped us mount a really effective fight. Karma, you had an interesting point in your academe article, which I'll link both of these articles in the show notes. You wrote, we could not depend on our ability to use evidence to advance an argument because good arguments mattered very little to our opponents. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how you approached the situation where ideology trumped logic and evidence? Yeah, I mean, we all know this, right? But I think you have to go into a struggle like this, assuming that you can make a good argument that's going to matter. And I think it was kind of interesting because, you know, I'm a rhetoric scholar. I study social movements, so I, I kind of know the drill. But I was working with a lot of folks who were in the hard sciences, and I think maybe we're less disillusioned uh, about politics than I was. And so I think this was sort of a devastating realization for for some of them. And it requires us to to just think about power differently. I mean, we would create these white papers that were beautifully researched. We even, though we're academics, we learned to make them short enough that a legislator might actually read them. You know, we would talk them point by point with the staffer and staffer sits there nodding their head and nothing changed. And so it was really, I think, a good reminder that the only way to move anything is through moving power. And that's where, again, like our our not having the alumni out like we needed to was was a big mistake because I think that's a great source of, of power because of often who they are in the state. But yeah, I think everybody needs to make that realization that you have to do that. It's a necessary part of the struggle. You have to try to win the the discourse war. You have to try to get that message out in in every paper in the state, right? I, that's that was my message. We didn't do that. I want to do that this next time around. Um, but you also have to know the limitations of that and really apply pressure where where there is power. Sarah, do you want to weigh in on effective communication strategies you developed in Ohio during your campaign? Sure. I mean, very early on in the process, we uh, had a group of people come together to talk about messaging. We knew that was going to be really important to establish messages and make sure that everybody's using those messages. And so, as I mentioned previously, the bill is called the Higher Education Enhancement Act, but we decided that we call it the Higher Education Destruction Act. And we made a list of the top talking points that we circulated to our allies. And I think we've done a really good job staying on message. And I think that that's a really critical piece when you're you know, facing these kinds of bills. Um, sometimes the message would shift a bit, you know, given where the bill was in the process. But from the beginning, we would always bring it back to the key points. 
um, that the bill was bad for students, bad for workers, bad for higher education, and bad for Ohio. And I would say the most important thing we did is build a, a sense of massive opposition to the bill really early on. Uh, we also used some social media ads. We had an action network page through which people could really easily um, write to their lawmakers. We had dozens of op-eds dominate the opinion pages of Ohio newspapers. And I would also say that one really critical thing that we did um, was, you know, there was a conservative professor um, from the Cleveland area who had written an op-ed and we didn't know him previously to this. And, you know, we asked him if he would come down and testify. And he's not just somebody who calls himself a conservative. He's actually a Republican elected official in his county. So he's legit. And he, you know, told the committee, this bill is a dumpster fire. It's not going to do what you think it's going to do. It could actually hurt conservative voices like mine on campuses. And I think that having the right messengers is a really important tool as well, is that you need to make sure that they're going to listen to who you put in front of them. And so I think that that was something that really caused a lot of pause, um, you know, when that testimony occurred. And so what are some of the other lessons learned or suggestions you have for AUP members and chapters regarding organizing faculty and supporters in these legislative fights, given that it's obviously happening in in many states and is ongoing? Karma, do you want to take that first? Yeah, I'm happy to take that. I think I learned this lesson when I was in Wisconsin in 2015, which is that faculty, well, actually, I learned it before that. I learned it in 2010, because in 2010, when Scott Walker dismantled the public sector unions, in or 2011, and faculty were out protesting. We had 100,000 people at the Capitol in Madison. And uh, I can remember a, a colleague of mine, you know, people are handing out posters. And she grabs one and it says something about, you know, faculty demand a union now. And she was like, oh, whoa, I, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can agree with that. And I was like, why? And she was like, well, I mean, you know, faculty are just a, we're, we're a different type of worker. Like, you know, we're a professional, remember the professional class. And I was like, that I should have known right there. That was a foreshadowing, right, of how this was going to play out over the next several years where Wisconsin is sort of a, a canary in the coal mine. And so I think that's a big thing that we have to get around is that very question. Are you a worker or not? Let's talk about the ways you are a worker. And I think that that has to really happen at the very local departmental level. I think, you know, my department at UT, we have the most faculty of any department in AAUP on campus. Not per capita. I'm a de- We're a department of 13 people, but we have the most number, like the most number of faculty in the department. Why is that? Because for years, I will bring in AAUP. P reps to faculty meetings just to do a presentation about, you know, what they're up to. Um, what does it mean to be a member? When this started, you know, I had conversations with each of my faculty individually. I know it's like one of those risks. I'm a department chair. Am I coercing them? Well, that's a risk I have to take. I think those are the kinds of risks we all have to take to talk to the people we're close to. And then the other big thing here too is not everybody can do what I do, right? So I'm not asking people to be involved in AAUP the way that I'm involved in AAUP. But I try to get a single commitment from each person, right? So what can you do? Can you submit written testimony? Can you write an op-ed? Can you talk to two of your colleagues? 
it doesn't have to be a big thing. And then if someone follows through with that ask, then I can make another ask, right? And eventually people are just showing up on their own. And so I think it's taking the time to really ease people into just advocacy, not even using the activist word, just just advocacy. And then maybe, right, maybe you'll become an activist later, but that's not even something you have to even think about. And so I really try to use that approach, I think, with getting folks on side. I think keeping up the pressure is really important and it can kind of get exhausting in these fights because a lot of them will drag out for a while. Like I said, you know, we've been dealing with this bill in Ohio for almost a year and, but it's really important that you keep up the pressure that you not let it lag because as soon as you do let it lag is when they're likely to move on it. And so, you know, keeping up the pressure is really critical. You know, like we already talked about a little bit, you know, controlling the narrative and staying on message, I think is also really important to what karma was saying, you know, showing up and speaking out, but that can be in a number of ways, like even just sending an email to your lawmaker, or making a phone call or doing whatever you can do and you know, to help fight this in some way. Um, You know, I think you have to lean on your allies and divide and conquer, you just can't do this kind of work on your own. And so you have to pick and choose, you know, what you're going to do, you know, what somebody else might be able to help with. And I just, you know, at the end of the day, just leave nothing on the table. You know, I don't think we any of us want to look back and think, wow, we could have done more um, to fight back against this. And so I think that we just want to make sure at the end of the day that there's only so much that we can control in these fights. But we want to make sure we're doing everything we can to fight back because these are really big issues. And it's a scary time for higher education um, in Ohio and nationally. And we need to do our part in pushing back. Is there anything else you want to add that we didn't touch on? From the Ohio perspective, you know, I I want to say that we're looking at what is the root cause of some of this, right? Like we know that there is this national movement. Karma mentioned, you know, Christopher Rufo, and we talked about, you know, the right wing think tanks that are pushing these bills. But in Ohio, we have a huge problem with gerrymandering. And I'm not saying that Ohio doesn't lean red, but it doesn't lean as red as the makeup of our legislature suggests. And so we are part of an effort that's going to put a constitutional amendment on the November ballot to reform redistricting in Ohio. And we have to do this because, you know, we face a battle right now, but this is a long game, right? And we know that if we had a more balanced legislature, SB 83 may not have even gotten a hearing because that's how ridiculous of a bill this is. And so we need to bring more balance to our legislature. And so, you know, this is an example of of getting more political and getting outside of just talking about academic freedom and tenure. You have to get involved in the political process to make change in order to, you know, bring about the kinds of change that you want for your issues later on. The only other thing I would add is we sort of, I think, signaled at this, but I was at the Texas Conference AAUP meeting on Saturday in San Antonio, and we were you know, talking about the transition to becoming a, a, a AFT local. So the Texas conference will become the AFT local due to the the merger of AFT and AEP. And I think one of the things that I've not been as good at, and I know I need to be, is really thinking about those connections with K-12 and higher ed. Um, and I think this just speaks to the sort of bigger picture that Sarah's talking about. So we have to not just be so centered on on our issues in higher ed, but really thinking about what that means um, in, in these broader ways. And I agree that the issue of gerrymandering and um, just the broader issues of connecting with our community are, are key. So I thought that was worth pointing out. Um, that's great. I really appreciate you both taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
Thanks to both Karma and Sarah for joining me today. We have a lot of good links in the show notes, including links to their academe articles, links to AAUP resources for fighting political interference. More information can be found on our website, aaup.org. Thank you for listening to AAUP Presents. I'm the host, Mariah Quinn.